welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. This episode of the Alabama History Podcast features a roundtable discussion about the Clotilda, the last slave ship that plied southern waters, and Africatown, the community created by the emancipated people carried by the Clotilda and their descendants. The roundtable took place on March 7th, 2023, the second day of events associated with the 2023 McPherson Mitchell Lecture in Southern History at Troy University. The lecture's host, Dr. Katherine Tucker of the Troy University History and Philosophy Department, eschewed the usual single lecture format in favor of a screening and discussion of Theo Moore's film, African by Way of America, and the roundtable recorded here. Our presenters are Dr. Katherine Tucker, Mr. Jeremy Ellis, President of the Clotilda Descendants Association, Mr. Ben Raines, Mobile journalist and author who discovered the sunken Clotilda, Ms. Stacy Hawthorne, Alabama State Archaeologist, General Walter Givan, Chair of the Alabama Historical Commission, and Mr. Theo Moore, filmmaker and principal of historical theater productions. During the question and answer period, audience members did not use the microphone, so their questions and comments did not record well enough to include in this audio. I have summarized their questions so the answers are coherent. I wish to thank Troy University and Troy Trojan Vision for providing the audio for this roundtable. Tonight, um, I'm very excited to be able to have this event uh, talk about some very important topics in our nation history, uh, Africa Town and the Clotilda. Um, I just want to kind of have a conversation. We have people from a lot of different backgrounds who have been involved in very different parts of this kind of ongoing story of you know, finding and uncovering the remains of the ship, um, the building of the community and the descendants. Um, so I want to start with Jeremy, actually. Um, as a descendant, you know, part of this community, uh, can you get us started by telling us a little bit about um, what we're here about, uh, the Clotilda and Africatown and the community that the survivors built? Well, first, let me just say, Dr. Tucker, thank you. Uh, thank Troy University. Uh, and everyone involved, the sponsors, for having us here today, as well as the Historical Commission, Ben Raines, as well as um, Theo, uh, for being partners with the Clotilda Descendants Association. Um, so my name is Jeremy Ellis. I am a direct descendant of two of the enslaved Africans aboard Clotilda, the last known slave ship to bring enslaved Africans via the transatlantic slave trade. I did put some slides together just for context, um, but since we want this to be a conversation, I'll go through those quickly. But by show of hands, how many people are familiar with the story of Clotilda, the 110 enslaved? If you've seen the film Descendant or um, seen Theo's film or 
anything by show of hands. Anyone? Okay, great, great, great. So I'll, I'll go through this really quickly. Um, these are just a few slides that tell the story, but it's important that we have context. Um, and as, the, as a descendant, um, I consider myself a memory keeper, someone who wants to preserve the history and the legacy of my ancestors. So um, we know that it was about 12.7 million Africans were subjected to the transatlantic slave trade. About 10.7 million made it. That means about 2 million did not make it. The significance of this story is 1808, transatlantic slave trade was abolished. Um, so that made it illegal. So what took place in 1860 was actually illegal under federal law. And in 1820, um, the Piracy Act was amended. If you were caught participating in the transatlantic slave trade, it was punishable by death. Um, the, the story begins with a conspirator by the name of Timothy Mayer. Timothy Mayer, who was a wealthy businessman in the Mobile, Alabama area. Um, may, it's, they call it a, it's, I call it a folklore. But essentially, he made a bet that he could um, get a car, a, a, a full shipload of N-words over via the transatlantic slave trade. Um, that's kind of the folklore, the rumor of how this all began. Um, this is the journey that they would take, Captain William Foster. And you'll actually see the line there. But Captain William Foster, who was commissioned, he was set sail around March 4th, 1860, to the west coast of Africa, now uh, Benin, uh, the kingdom of Dahomey, and he would uh, arrive there where he would purchase 125 of the enslaved Africans. Um, one other thing I'd like to point out that a lot of people don't know is that on his journey, he would encounter um, some, some brutal storms as well as be chased several times. That shows you just how determined he was to make that journey to the West Coast. Um, he would purchase 125 of the enslaved Africans. What's key here is the diversity of that group. They were from the ages of 2 to 23. Um, I believe my ancestor, um, Kapoli, was around 19 years of age. Um, but they were, they had lives prior to all of this taking place, right? They were soldiers, um, worked in the markets, um, but they were living their lives as they within their tribes before before the, um, being captured by the Dahomean warriors and sold to Captain Foster. Uh, real quickly, um, this painting that I have up there is is really important. I actually own that painting, but it was done by Kadir Nelson. And the significance and the reason why I purchased it is because if you look back um, in the back, that's Clotilda. Clotilda was too large to actually port at, uh, on, on, on the coast. So they would anchor down in the water and they would load those canoes with, uh, with, the, uh, with the Africans. And then they would, from the canoe, they would sell them out to Clotilda. And so they purchased 125 but they would only leave, Captain Foster would only leave with 110 because of those warships. There were some British warships that saw them anchored, and so they basically left 15 on shore, and they set sail in order to avoid being captured via, the, um, via those warships. 
real quickly. Uh, so they would leave and arrive around July the 8th in the Mobile, Alabama area um, where they would essentially, Captain Foster, you'll hear about this from, uh, I'm sure from Ben and as well as from Stacy, how they would um, sink the ship. They would transport the 110 enslaved Africans over to a steamboat, Czar, and set sail up north um, to a plantation where they, would, where they would essentially hide. I did not, whenever I tell this story, typically when I have more time, I try to describe that transatlantic slave trade journey back. It was not a cruise. I mean, they essentially were stacked um, side by side. Neck, well, first they were stripped naked. So they were naked, no clothes on, had never, they were inland people, had never seen um, the ocean or the waters, and they would essentially eat, sleep, vomit, all in that same location. Um, one other thing that I, I have to point out is that for the first 13 days when they were on that voyage, they, were, they remained in the cargo hold to stay hidden. And so that's what we're dealing with during that journey. Uh, and we believe that one, maybe two may have died uh, on their way to, 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 to where Mobile. Real quickly, uh, I, I like that picture there. I actually took that picture when I was out looking at Clotilda because that gives you an idea of what they would have seen when they arrived. Naked, no clothes on, and swamp, uh, alligators, uh, moccasins, Mosquitoes, you know how the mosquitoes are in the summertime. That's, that was what they experienced. Um, real quickly, this is my ancestry, Capoli and Rose Allen. Uh, this is Poli. Um, he was one of the 110. He, uh, for those first five years, they were enslaved. Um, he stacked lumber. He, and I like to humanize my ancestors, right? A lot of time, when we, tell, when we think of slavery, um, or we talk about enslavement, it's a theory. But I like to put a face with the name of my ancestors to humanize them, to give, let people know that these were actual human beings um, that had a life prior to arriving here. And when they arrived, showed their resiliency through, the first, uh, through what they were able to accomplish with creating Africatown. Um, but this is Capoli. He would actually vote for the, uh, he would make everlasting tea. Um, he would actually become a U.S. citizen in 1868. Uh, and then he would actually cast his very first ballot November 3rd, 1874. And I take this picture. This is me and my daughters. But I show that picture because on November the 3rd, 2020, 147 years after my, uh, her great, 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 great granddad would vote, she would go with me to cast uh, uh, or to witness me casting a ballot. So that's important, the democratic process and, and that whole thing. So real quickly, um, Rose, uh, Rose Allen, uh, she was also one of the shipmates and there's not a lot of history, uh, information about her. Um, that's one thing that I've been trying to do is learn more about the women that were on the ship. Uh, this is the group of nine. This picture was, uh, was done by Emma Roach, one of the 
uh, artist, uh, I'm sorry, one of the authors of one of the books that I recommend you all reading. But these were the nine uh, living survivors when, uh, when she interviewed them for her book. Uh, and then this is Africatown. Um, it exists today. That's Union Baptist. That's the church. That's the cemetery. And that is the Mobile County Training School, what they all started. And um, they did all of that. Um, April 12, 1865, they learned of their freedom. And then from 1865 until their deaths, individual deaths, they would show their resiliency through, through all of this. So, and I'll come back to this, but this is the Heritage House that's going to tell the story of the 110. So hopefully that answered your question, but I'd like to give some context um, because it's important as a memory keeper um, that we share the full story. Um, and if anyone is ever interested in hearing the more in-depth story, definitely feel free to reach out because I can go into a lot more detail about what actually took place and what they experienced over those, over those years. Thank you so much. It's, as I tell my students, such an important story because it touches on so many different parts of American history, world history, so many different important themes that have shaped our world today, including, like you highlighted, the resilience, the you know continuing to fight to build the community that's still there today. Um, and keep the story alive uh, in a way that um, most of the rest of the world forgot about these people. They kept their own story alive. They knew they had come over on this ship, that that ship you know, had been uh, burned and sunk to hide the evidence. Um, which brings us to uh, Ben. You are the one who actually found the ship. Um, you are not a descendant. Um, so I'm curious how you learned about this story, um, how you decided, uh, and how you knew how to you know, figure out where this ship is, um, and why you thought it was so important to um, really highlight uh, this tangible link to the past. Uh, well, it started with a phone call, actually, my involvement with the Clotilda. So I had been an, uh, an investigative reporter in Mobile for the newspaper for about 20 years and never once thought of looking for the Clotilda. Um, a friend of mine called me up one day and said, I just heard a guy on the radio, which turned out to be the city historian of Mobile, and he said, if we could ever find the Clotilda, it would solve one of the greatest maritime mysteries. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, the Clotilda. And I'd seen the mural in town. There's a mural in Mobile. And I knew it was where the last slave ship came in. Um, so he says, you know, he says, you got to go find it. You should look for the ship. And I said, is it missing? Because I didn't understand that the ship had been burned and everything. Because as Jeremy pointed out, it was illegal in 1860 and had been for more than 50 years to bring in slave people in the country. So my friend gave me kind of a Cliff Notes version on the phone. And I said, you want me to go look for a, a, sh a ship from the 1860s that's been missing for 100 years, 160 years, that people have been looking for the entire time. That's ridiculous. It's like looking for pirate treasure. And so we hung up the phone. And of course, I typed Clotilda into Google. And I read everything I could find online. And then I ordered all the relevant history books before I got up from the computer. I was totally hooked. Uh, that was in the summer of 2017. And, um, I ultimately laid hands on the ship in April of 2018. Um, along the way, you know, I, I found the ship underwater in scuba gear, but I really found it in the library uh, doing the history work. And that's where I came across multiple clues that led me to this area, 12 Mile Island, where the ship was. Um, 
And so it all started with a phone call and some curiosity. My friend thought I might be able to find it because um, I, I also lead uh, nature tours in this big swamp where the ship was, the Mobile Tensaw Delta. Um, and I wrote a book about it called Saving America's Amazon, and I made a documentary about the Delta. So he pointed out that I knew it really well. Um, so when I started getting into the story, the, the thing about the Clotilda story is it's very famous because it was this caper. And when it happened, it was treated, the captain who had accomplished it, Timothy Mayer, who you saw in the pictures, was treated as a swashbuckling hero. Um, he was so famous by the time he died 30 years later, the New York Times wrote an obituary about him, calling him the last slaver. Um, and so what's really unique is he got interviewed over and over for this 30-year period. Every time they came to town to interview Timothy Mayer, they also went to Africatown. The town started by the Africans to, to interview or see at least these people who still spoke their native tongue because they were a curiosity. So much so that Cujo Lewis, who was the most famous of the Africans and lived till 1935, uh, a New York vaudeville theater tried to hire him to come to New York and sit on stage every night and tell his story in his voice. That's how exotic these people were. So what compelled me to look for it was originally this phone call. As I started getting into the history, then I began to understand why the ship was so important. And in Mobile, it was kind of treated as an urban myth. Um, you know, people in Africatown would talk about it, but then you'd hear people in Mobile say, oh, it's not true. Even some university press professors at the University of South Alabama said they doubted that the ship had, had sailed and told me that. Um, so if you, if you want to read my book, The Last Slave Ship, I tell the whole story of finding the ship. Um, but what I want to talk about right now is why we're talking about the Clotilda today and why it's so relevant. And that has to do with a couple of things, the first being time when it happened, which was 1860. By then, almost every enslaved person in the United States had been born in the United States because it had been illegal to bring people in for 50 years. So most enslaved people didn't know Africa. They didn't know the Middle Passage. They hadn't had those, those experiences. They had been born into slavery in the United States. And because nobody was recording the histories of enslaved people back in 1808, when all these people were still coming in from Africa, those stories had kind of disappeared out of the historic record. So with the Clotilda people becoming so notorious or, or famous, um, they were interviewed over and over during this period. And the most famous interview, or most important one, happened in 1910, when 10 of these people were still alive living in Africatown. And a woman named, named Emma Roach, who was the daughter of a Confederate war hero who ran a funeral home in Mobile, started interacting with the Africans. And her first connection was several of them worked as grave diggers for her father at the funeral home. So then she encountered Cujo Lewis on the street when he had been hit by a train driving his wagon to go buy some peas to plant in his garden. And so she got a doctor for him. She helped him sue the railroad that had hit him with the train. They became friends. This pulled her into their community. So she interviewed these people in 1910 and got their stories. So these are some of the only records in the historical record from the mouths of enslaved Africans. These people told their stories about what their lives and their villages were like, what their names were, what their customs were. Uh, they talked about the slave raids. Jeremy mentioned the 12 million people that we know were deported from Africa in, in chains. There's another story in Africa that's not very well known in the United States. To get those people involved brutal wars and slave raids. So they think that between 20 and 40 million Africans were killed, not enslaved, were killed to capture that 10 to 12 million. So 
these people talked about those things. They told stories about being in the barracoons, the slave prisons. They talked about the Middle Passage. Then their time when they were enslaved. These are some of the only records like that in the historic record. And so what they become is a sort of proxy. It's the origin story for the African diaspora. Most African Americans only know their history back to the plantation their ancestors were enslaved on. They, don't, they can't go back any further. You know, ancestry and all that doesn't let them go back to the 1400s the way it does some families. So this becomes a, a story for everybody whose ancestors arrived in the hold of a boat. By hearing these people's stories, you can know what happened to your ancestors. And it, it sort of puts a face on the enslaved. And the Clotilda story puts a face on the enslavers, the white enslavers. For most of us, we've heard about slavery in school. And it's just an academic thing in the book. And you read the facts, 12 million, these, this is the time period. The Clotilda passengers do just what Jeremy was saying he wants to do to his ancestors, which is, is humanize them and put a face on it. And so this shows you the villains. This shows you the heroes of the story. Um, and so it's one of the most important American stories we have for the whole enslavement period. Um, and so that's, you know, the portrait that emerges of these people, they are fighters. They fought back beginning on the plantation. Um, and they kept fighting once they were freed. They banded together, they built each other houses. When the white community wouldn't give them a school, they built one themselves, they built a church. Um, so it's quite an extraordinary American story about survival and uh, rising above, being resilient, um, and overcoming in face of all kind of um, terrible, terrible odds. The last reason I want to say it's important is because we get one other window into these people. We've always heard all our lives all the things that came over across the ocean in the bodies of the captives. And with the Clotilda people, you can see it in real time. Um, we have records of American-born slaves talking about the songs the Clotilda people sang when someone died. And they said, we couldn't understand the words, but they were so sad they'd make us cry. Um, and then the women farmed the way they did in their native country made food and they would go sell it around town. And they became very famous for their stews. And so they would go to these factories, there was a, a gunpowder factory, a sawmill, etc., and they would sell stew. So in Benin, where these people are all from, uh, that's where black-eyed peas come from, that's where okra comes from. In Benin, the word for okra is gumbo. So these women were selling gumbo. There's a TV show on Netflix called High on the Hog and it makes the case that uh, Cajun cuisine comes from Benin. It's kind of a fascinating thing. So that's why these people are so important. That's why this story is so important. I love that. It just touches on so much of human history, everything from the food to, uh, as you said, the power differentials. Um, and of course, finding this ship is what has brought it into national and international attention now, um, which is so valuable because now people, you know, they can't deny that this story is real anymore. They can't deny that these people had this experience, uh, resisted this experience, built this community, um, and the ship has become kind of the focal point, the launching pad. I think, to explore all of these other human and historical uh, stories. Uh, so you very much have the historical story, you have the human story, but of course you also have to have the scientific side of how do you know, you know, you talk in your book about um, how many ships there are just sunk in the waters. It's kind of astonishing, really. Um, so Stacy, as the state archaeologist, how do you even go about saying this is that exact ship? Uh, and how do you prove that? Okay, I have, is this working? Yes. Okay, 
I have photographs. So yes. oh, archaeology sort of uh, helps tell a story, thanks Ben, through material culture. So obviously I have to have pictures. We have any archaeologists in here? I was hoping we might have some. <laughs> Same, me too. Okay. Um, so, oops. Ah. <laughs> This is, this is General Gavan when he was, um, he was uh, chair of the Historical Commission when we made the announcement that we had definitely identified the ship as Clotilda. So I put, um, I, I thought folks from Troy would like to see your, one of your yes. own. Um, so let's see. Uh, we have, uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this starts off in May, but um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about uh, the scientific process first. Um, how did we identify the ship? That's what you were asking. Yes. Um, it's with scientific method, you, you assume something's not something first. And it has been mentioned, this is in a ship's graveyard, and you mentioned, so there are a lot of shipwrecks just in this one area. So, you know, it's a process of elimination, and basically, is this better? Sorry about that. I was trying not to make that noise when you, bl you blow into the microphone. Yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so it's a process of elimination. You assume that you, it's not, you try to prove it's not what you want it to be or what you think it is or your theory. So, you know, this is how we went at it. And so, you know, after this, you know, this is a survey, you look at a bunch of ships, you eliminate a bunch of ships, you finally come down to one that's like, that you have, um, you know, that fit, you can't knock down. And then you start going at it at, you know, you look at, okay, is it, we had the registration papers for Clotilda. Of course, we did documentary research. Uh, we knew the dimensions. Is it the right dimensions? Yes. Okay, we can't knock it down there. We know what it was made of. Is it, is it made of oak with pine planking? So we took samples of oak and pine, and we sent them off to disparate labs, and they came back as not only oak and pine, but southern pine. So we were good there. It was the right vessel shape. We knew that it was a it was a Gulf Coast schooner. So you know we were looking at all of these different aspects, and we could, we just couldn't knock it down. And the more research we do, you know, the more sure we become. Of course, we wouldn't have announced it if we weren't sure. But you know, every time we go out, we do remote sensing. This is black water, and I think I've got some some slides of the scans in here. So, you know, we look at how the sediment's moving on and off of it. But it also reveals, you know, when it moves off, it reveals more details. So we began to see a bulkhead that shouldn't be there if it were a lumber schooner. And then, you know, on the most recent work, we began to see some uprights that may be some sort of furniture in the hold where the, um, the captives were held. So, you know, as, as time moves on, we, we just add more and more pieces to the puzzle. But, you know, we also knew it was burned. Um, because this was a crime scene, and it was burned, and at some point in its history, it had dynamite fl thrown on it. Um, we think it was probably because, you know, it's on, the, it's on the, uh, the navigational charts as a hazard, and so we think that maybe that's why it was dynamited, is because it was a hazard. We've also heard that, um, that they wanted the copper sheathing or the Muntz metal sheathing that was on it. But anyway, so, you know, we had a, we had a fire marshal look at it, we, you know, to prove that it was burned, and... So there are all these different steps. I'm sorry, I'm just going through a laundry list, but um, that's, that's basically what we do. And so then um, now, what I did not mention and how I am involved, the Alabama Historical Commission is the steward of all 
cultural resources, archaeological sites, shipwrecks in Alabama waters. And so we are, we're responsible for not only the identification, but the preservation of this vessel. And so in last May, we went out and we did a rather large investigation to collect a lot of scientific data that will help us make the best decisions possible for preservation, long-term preservation of this incredible resource that is the touchstone for, for the story that Jeremy and Ben are telling. So um, that's, that's where most of my photographs are from. And so this is, this is the barge that we went out on for two weeks. And we had to, we used um, hard hat divers. This was, I'm a scuba diver, but this was beyond me. There were, we removed 14 uh, trees and snags from the vessel because it, we had only been able to really look at the front of it because it was so dangerous trying to go to the back, you might get snagged up or, or uh, so the first thing we did was remove the trees from the vessel. But this is one of our hard hat divers from Resolve getting into the water. And the, um, the helmets, they could communicate because it's black water. So, you know, we had a dive shack and they could tell him to move right or move left or, or whatever um, because he could talk and they could talk to him. Um, and that's, that's the uh, dive shack, that's mission control. This was our, we had a naval architect who was guiding things the whole time to make sure that we weren't damaging anything and to identify different parts. And that's Emily, our, our naval architect. And there's one of the trees that they removed. Um, it, was, it was amazing. They would go down and they would connect these trees to the snags. And then they would ride the snags out into the river until we could let the trees go. And that is a, um, that's the image we were working from. And all of those little boxes show a tree or snag that needed to be removed before we could do our work and collect our samples. And once we did, we removed all the vessels, uh, all the, um, the trees and snags, the obstructions, we began, I think I mentioned that the ship had been blown up. So there are pieces laying between the ship and the bank. And so one of the first things we did was we had our divers collect each and every uh, piece. And we examined it very quickly because once something that has been in an anaerobic atmosphere and you move it into the air, it begins to deteriorate very rapidly. So we had a big tank on board, which you'll see in later pictures. And so we would carefully examine things. We would draw them. We even 3D scan them. And then we would we'd put river water in the tank because we wanted to keep the chemistry the same. And so it went in the tank until at the very end, the ones that we chose not to keep for display went back into the vessel and then were covered with sandbags. So, because that's just to keep the environment the same is the best thing until you can conserve something. And um, this is, that's Jay from Diving with a Purpose. Um, Jay Hagler, he, I think he's the, the head of it, but he was there with us. Um, this is just more of the recording. Bria Brooks, she works for Search. Um, but we had to have a, a, a permit from the Corps of Engineers. There's a lot of permitting to do something like this, or, or you would need a permit from our office if it wasn't us doing the work to search in Alabama waters. But, um, but the, that's the Corps archaeologist back there. Um, we all had to wear hard hats and safety shoes and things like that. Uh, he's in the white hard hat with the, with the red uh, so that we had the Corps involved the whole time. That's Kamal Siddiqui. Uh, 
and I told you about the how we, we uh, submerged all of the timbers. He's submerging one of the timbers into the tank on the vessel. Kamal is, has been with us from the beginning, and he's also with uh, Slave Rex Project and Diving with a Purpose. Um, and then after we moved everything and we had a nice clean slate, we flew LIDAR with the drone. To, to just, we we're constantly taking imagery. Um, and then uh, we're putting things in, we used the basket to lift things and to, then to bring them back into the water when we, we were finished recording them. And we also tag them with Tyvek tags so that we'll have provenience for them. That's the most important thing in archeology, span it's knowing where you found it <laughs> and keeping up with it so you can reconstruct everything. Um, and this is uh, our, our conservators, uh, Claudia Camillo and uh, Paul Mardikian, and they are looking at a, this was a, the steering uh, mechanism for the ship, still attached to one of the, uh, the beams, and we did hold that out. It's going to take a while to conserve because it, it's a number, every different material has a different conservation technique, so the more complex the object, the, the harder it is to conserve, but Paul is checking, that's an iron wheel, and there's a little bit of rope left on it. But Paul is checking for the metallic, to see how metallic the iron still is, to, you know, to see that, that uh, determines how it's conserved or, or what kind of condition it's in. Um, that's uh, Ayana, another one of our um, diving with a, a purpose. That's Paul. He's looking at a, we found a, a little piece of the, the side and it had, something, a material on it that we didn't recognize, and that's what he's doing is checking that out there. And that's another of the pieces that's going to be conserved and ultimately displayed, but it'll take a while. Um, there we are getting everything ready to go back in the, um, in the ship that wasn't going to be held out. So you see the, the orange tags on it that we get, have, have all the information about where it was found and what we think it is. And the Historical Commission came out to, to uh, the, the commissioners, which uh, you were once one of, came out to the site. Well, and, uh, we couldn't allow anybody on the barge because of safety concerns, but they did come up and, you know, and see the site and meet us while we were doing the work in May. That is a, um, a uh, now I can't think of the term for it. It's the, it guided the anchor chain through the side of the ship. That it's made out of lead, and that's what we thought it was. A, we we kind of picked it because we thought that this was an easy artifact to conserve. And once we got it into the lab, we found out it has different types of metal, so it turns out not to be. It's, it's a compound artifact as well. But I heard Paul explain it as the nostrils of the ship, which I thought were like <laughs> one of the best uh, descriptions. And then um, this is. One of the problems is, you know, getting the artifacts to the facility to be conserved without damaging them. And the steering mechanism was on this big, long beam, and it was very fragile. So we had our carpenters come out and build this cradle, and then we put river water in it because, again, we want to keep the chemistry the same, and that's how it was transported back to Mobile for conservation. By the way, all these, these artifacts are on permanent loan to or to the Museum of Mobile, and they will eventually be in the Heritage House. It just is going to take years and years to conserve them. Um, and so finally, the very last thing we did in May was that we took, um, 
we, we excavated a very small section of the hold. This was not to find artifacts. This was to collect scientific samples because what we're really trying to find out now is the condition of the ship. You have a ship that was a crime scene. It was burned. It was sank. It had dynamite thrown on it. And yet it's still an exceptional condition. I mean, it's really the only uh, ship we have that we know brought enslaved people to America in American waters. But so it is, it is nationally significant, but you know, we, we're trying to do our best to do, you know, to do everything we can and do it absolutely correctly. So we were taking all these scientific samples, core samples of the sediment around it. We had flow monitors out there looking at how the water flows in and around it. Um, and biological samples to see what's living in the wreck. Everything from the little interstitial um, bacteria that's in the sediment around it to large things like the mollusk and even alligators. I think we got alligator DNA. So <laughs> And then, um, and then we did take the artifacts and have them x-rayed. Actually, I didn't. I was doing demobilization, but Paul and Claudia took them to have them x-rayed. So we would, again, be able to work with the ones that had, you know, th that were compound artifacts and see all of the materials and, and they'll help guide the conservation. And that was, I think that's the last one. You can see one of the x-rays showing the, um, the pins that go through and hold the, the planking together. And then those are, that's kind of a, a collection of different side scan images that we have. And it shows, it really shows how the, the sediment comes in and on and off the vessel, which is one of the things we're concerned with in terms of preservation or, you know, this is going to guide our, our path forward. Once we get all this information back, there'll be a report. The report will, um, will then uh, be peer reviewed and then we'll, go with the community and we'll make our decision together about what our next steps are in terms of you know conservation and preservation of the vessel I think that's, oh no there's that was some of the, that was the core sampling that we did uh, so we took sediment cores because we want to know how strong the sediment is that the ship's sitting in you know is it safe now is it safe in the future you know anything that we have to plan if we're going to raise anything and then the, that's one of the flow monitors going under the water. That actually happened before our thing in May. But, and again, we ended with you as well. <laughs> well, wonderful. Um, it's amazing how many different steps and processes go into this, the identification, the preservation, um, the different stakeholders and groups that are involved. You know, I know I had never thought about, like, who is in charge of shipwrecks in Alabama? Like, that just seems so random to me. But it <laughs> turns out to be the Alabama Historical Commission. Uh, and turns out that when this was going on, um, our own uh, Walter Gavon was chair of the Alabama Historical Commission, which uh, brings... Uh, Troy, at least into the orbit of uh, all that's going on here. Um, so, Walter, could you talk a little bit from um, your point of view, you know, not necessarily the science, but, you know, how do you balance all the different interests involved and the stakeholders and um, go about making the decisions for a find of this significance? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, as was mentioned, I, I was the chairman. I was lucky enough to be the chairman of the Historical Commission uh, at the time, this was, I'm no longer the chairman right now, but uh, it was through Troy University in my position here that I got on the Historical Commission, which was a great thing. I, I love it. Um, I also will tell you just personally, 
if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump or read the book, I'm sort of a Forrest Gump character. I just happened to be that guy that, you know, is in the photograph. How do you get in the photograph? Well, you know, I was, when I was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, I ended up, I was there when the Berlin Wall fell in Germany. You know, here I am. Here, here's Waldo. And uh, so I was lucky enough that here I am serving on the Historical Commission, and this whole thing that you've just heard described happens. And, um, and I'm in the photo, as you can see. But... More than that, it really was the opportunity of a lifetime. Uh, and I would say the key word, which you've heard before, is stewardship. So in my role on the Historical Commission, my real job was to help uh, lead those stewardship efforts that ultimately connect to people, people who are here now, but people who, whose stories go all the way back to those enslaved people brought over on this vessel. And stories that make this real, that make it not a line or two in a history book that says, yes, there were enslaved people or something. No, no, this was real. These people were real, they were here. And not only that, that the story is an you know, absolutely unique and remarkable one, uh, just, just endlessly fascinating. Um, so as we looked at this stewardship, we had to fulfill the role of the Historical Commission, which is to preserve, protect, and interpret the historical resources of this state and to be good stewards of them. And lo and behold, here, falling into our laps is one of the you know, greatest treasures that we could ever imagine, uh, something that exists nowhere else. Uh, that is tied to a remarkable story. So how do we do this? Well, I tell you what, it gets boring in a hurry, and I won't get into too many of the details, but in addition to the science, there's, a, there's law. So I reached out, Troy uh, graduate, Forrest Latta, to his law firm in Mobile. We needed people who understood maritime law. How can we do all the things that are required to make sure that we have secured this and that there are no claims put against it. That's called admiralty uh, sort of law. And so we did all that. Again, not very um, uh, thrilling, but something that has to be done necessarily. Now, what Stacy was sharing with you is the really exciting stuff and the stuff Ben's done as well, which is to actually get close to the thing. But in our cases, the Historical Commission, what we could bring what, you know, you saw some of the people there, those are superstars in their fields. And they, we were able to, Stacy's efforts and others' efforts to assemble that team and to focus them on the Clotilda. They were enthusiastic. We didn't have to, you know, twist many arms to get people involved uh, in that. So bringing those tremendous resources and then to have a moment like this for me, which is one of the most uh, significant moments that you know I've ever had a chance to experience and be part of is when all of these scientific efforts that Stacy described came back and said, "Yeah, it's the Clotilda." Uh, I got to go be part of that group that came to the descendants. You're seeing descendants in the room, and say exactly that. This is the Clotilda. We everything that we have seen says it's the Clotilda. And to be there and to see those faces and to see the emotion 
uh, you know, literally tears and understand how, you know, this validated that whole experience, that this was not, you know, a tall tale, a legend. Uh, you know, this was real. And it focused attention from all uh, quarters in a way that hasn't uh, been focused on this story. And I was just happy uh, to be a part of it. But as you heard, the stewardship continues. And I would say all of us in this room, and certainly all of us up here, need to remain committed to that stewardship. We've got a lot of work to do together. Uh, but boy, what a treasure, what a resource we have. And I'm just uh, glad I've had a chance to be part of this with everybody up here. Thank you. Absolutely. I, I think a treasure is a great way to describe it for, you know, the community, for the nation, for the world. Um, a lot of the process of uncovering this ship, this touchstone to then, you know, uh, verify, val validify, that's not a word, but, uh, you know, uh, verify the story. Um, some of that's happening, you know, you, you want to be sure before you make the announcements. So on the one hand, you know, we know that there was a lot of media attention to the search for the ship. On the other hand, some of this taking place kind of in back rooms and community memory more than the uh, glare of the media. Uh, but as all of this is developing, of course, people are picking up on this story, finding ways to tell it, um, including Theo Moore, one of our own alumni from here at Troy, uh, who was one of the first to make a documentary about um, the ship, but even more so about the community, you know, using the ship as the lens into telling this larger story. Um, so Theo, for you, having spent time, you know, in the community, meeting these people, watching all of this play out, um, what do you think are the lessons that um, finding the Clotilde, uh, uh, highlighting the Africa Town story, what do you think that can, you know, tell us about important historical and societal themes in our world? Sure, sure, sure. Come on, all right. Sure, uh, that was a loaded question, but I'm gonna tackle it. I'm going to tackle it. Um, so I'm going to contextualize it a little bit, give you a background. Um, I started Historical Vision Productions, a nonprofit in 2017, highlighting untold but inspiring history of African-Americans across the South. Around that time, around 2018, 2019, we completed two projects highlighting Lowndes County, the rich history there, and also Hobson City, the first city in Alabama to be entirely governed by African Americans. Um, around that time, 2018, 2019, a lot of uh, breaking news of the discovery of the Clotilde ship um, uh, from the nice people up here. Um, and, um, I, and a lot of people actually told me about it, and then I did a little bit of my own research and it, of course, it was breaking news, and so I was like, this has to be the next project. And so uh, I put in a grant to do the project. Uh, I was funded by Alabama State Council on the Arts uh, to do this project. And um, from there, I did some preliminary work um, reaching out to the community. But with that being said, I wouldn't say I'm one of the first filmmakers to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to actually uh, um, do a piece on um, Africatown. There's so many uh, people that came before me and after me. You know, uh, it, it's such a, a deep and wide story, and you can tackle it from different angles. Um, and and for me, 
um, that's basically what I did because I was when I started the film, I wasn't in search of the Clotilda. You know, I leave that up to the experts. I was more so interested in the people that was on that ship and their descendants and their stories. And, and so, like I said yesterday, um, when I sat down with the community and uh, with some of the descendants and asked for their blessing, because I asked for a blessing, uh, they, they looked at me and said, hey, it's not about the ship, it's about the people on the ship. And so right then and there, I knew too that, you know, I knew that the Clotilda wasn't, wasn't my story to tell, basically. And so I had to move away from that and start talking about what Ben mentioned, um, how they actually was able to build a church, a school, um, some of the rock stars, unsung heroes in the community that a lot of people don't know about that helped sustain um, and preserve these stories for, for a long period of time, like Lorna Woods and uh, Mama Thelma, Dr. James A. Franklin, Hearing C. Williams, um, Dora Finley, um, a lot of these people, I want to give them their roses. And so when you watch the film, um, of course you have to mention the Clotilda, uh, you have to, but I, as you, you'll see the film actually transition to um, honoring these people that uh, played a big role in, in sustaining this community. And so, uh, I spent a lot of time with the community, not as much as I wanted to, because in the middle of production, COVID hit. <laughs> so COVID hit, and um, man, it was so many, so the world was just in, all, yeah, it was just a hard time for all of us. And I decided to persevere through the film by interviewing people via Zoom, but I really didn't do everything I set out to do for, you know, there's some personal things that happened in the midst of that film, uh, losing my mother that year. Uh, but uh, so with COVID-19, I really didn't complete the film as I would like, because I would like to interview some of these people that's on, <laughs> on stage with me right Maybe now. Maybe you I need didn't. a sequel. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I would love to see that. Exactly, thank you. Um, and so, this is how cool this, this I'm gonna talk about this because it's a cool story uh, that is aligned with this. Um, after debuting in the film in 2021, August of 2021, uh, I was happy about the film, but at the same time, there's a lot to need, that needs to be done in Africatown from a revitalization standpoint. And, you know, I felt like, you know, a film is just not enough. I mean, you know, I was still wanting to do more. And, and so, lo and behold, Alabama Historical Commission called me in October uh, about this position that they have, um, African American Heritage Coordinator. Um, after doing the interview and learning more about the position, where I will be in charge of um, preserving African American sites and cemeteries across the state. Um, and helping with different programs that the Alabama Historical Commission offers, I was like, cool, I do it. <laughs> I was like, cool, I do it. And so as soon as I got the job, I kid you not, I, I called Af the people in Africatown. I was like, hey, I got this job. I can now help from a different lens. And, and that meant a lot for me because I know there's much work to be done to, to your point um, in Africatown. Um, 
what we can learn from this, this story is that it's a complete story. You have the oral history that the descendants held on to for decades. You have the scientific archaeological finds from, you know, uh, Ben Raines and um, Stacy, and um, and we have that we have a complete story that we can actually look at it, um, dismiss your ego, dismiss, you know, your uh, religious beliefs. Um, it's right there in your face, and we have an opportunity. This state has an opportunity um, to learn this history at face value, um, and 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 push forward, you know, in, in the sense. So I think that's all I have. That's great, and brings us um, right back around to what was going to be, y'all, I have so many questions. I wish we could just, you know, I, I would love to talk to all of you about so much, um, but want to leave a few minutes for audience questions as well. So um, the last thing I wanted to, you know, throw out to y'all, um, you know, coming from different perspectives, and particularly Jeremy as a descendant, what is next? You know, there's been this major discovery, you know, international attention. Um, where do you go next to preserve and share this history and these lessons? Great question. Um, so I sh in my slides, I showed you the Heritage House. And so on July the 8th, they're going to be opening the Heritage House, having the grand opening, and they're going to have the Clotilde exhibit. Uh, if you go to www clotilda.com, uh, you'll see the, the media package as well as in a few weeks, you'll be able to reserve, um, get tickets, and it'll be open. So we want to invite everyone out. Um, the Clotilda Descendants Association is actually partnering with Ben for our landing event. Uh, we want to have an opportunity for folks that are interested to see the site where Clotilde is. So a lot of activity and a lot of events are gonna be taking place in preparation for the Heritage House, which is gonna open on Saturday, July the 8th. We're planning uh, three, two to three days worth of events for folks to come out and join us. So we invite everyone under the sound of my voice. Well, that's wonderful and I am, I'm making plans to be there on like July 8th, you know, making, making mental notes to myself. Um, you know, it's going to be very exciting to see how this all proceeds and like you were talking about, you know, the decisions for what to do with the ship and how to preserve it, um, how to, you know, build an institution in Africatown to tell the story as descendants, as filmmakers, as journalists, um, how do we move this story forward? Uh, and I'm very excited to see how we continue moving forward. Um, like I said, I would love to keep talking, but I do want to make sure we have time for audience questions. Um, so if anyone has any questions for us, uh, for our wonderful esteemed panelists, um, we can take some questions now. Questions from the audience were unmicrophoned and so they are undiscernible on this audio. Consequently, I will try to summarize the questions as best I can for you. Our first question is Dr. Joyce Zoe Farley, then a visiting assistant professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, asks Jeremy Ellis if the Africatown Heritage Center Museum will incorporate, quote, authentic black English 
unquote, that the Clotilda descendants continue to speak for generations? Or will the museum change that dialect to make it more acceptable to white visitors? Thank you for that question. Excellent question. So I wish you would have had a chance to meet the descendants of Cujo Lewis, Cassandra Lewis, Altavis Rosario, Gary Lumbers, they and the descendant community in general are very adamant about keeping the language and the way they spoke and the customs that they had preserving that history. So much so that I know for a fact Cassandra has called different folks to make certain that they reword, rework how something was said. Um, and so to answer your question, um, we have been, we do work with the, historic, the his, History Museum and they have consulted with us to make certain that that language and the history is preserved the way that they said it and how they did things. So yes. Any other questions? Dr. Farley asks a similar follow-up question about Black English, again to Jeremy Ellis. Um, I don't know if you heard me. I said I have, we, the Senate community, we have not went to that level, but we, we, for our individual families, each family is very intentional about making certain that the history of that family is done the way that they see fit and that maintaining the language, even so much so, um, you probably know this because you read Barracoon, but the reason that story got delayed for one of the reasons is because Zora refused to change the dialect in the book. She said, no, this is what he said. These are his words. And it was after years before it even, decades before it even, before 80, 80 years before it even came out. And that's why Cassandra Wallace, I mean, you bring that up is because she's one of the descendants and she's a direct descendant. And she tells the story and, and she'll, she'll correct anyone and she'll say, that's not what he said. This is what he said, and you need to correct it. And I've seen her do it. So the family, the point is that the families are very intentional about being memory keepers and preserving the history, the legacy, and, and their dialect as they spoke it and as it is written and documented, in this case by Zora Neale Hurston. An unidentified audience member asks Mr. Ellis about the research process he and others used to discover who the Clotilda descendants were. In 1984, the Africatown Direct Descendants of the Clotilda Inc. was founded. And my grandmother was the last president of the original organization. And so as a little person, she would always bring us along to different events that they were doing and holding to preserve the history. So I was always at Union Baptist in the summertime. I was always in motorcades, and she was continuously telling us this story. It wasn't until I, I graduated from Auburn University, uh, and when I was in school, I had some really close friends that were from Selma, and they always spoke about the significance of Selma 
and it because it never resonated to me at that until that point the significance of this story. So even though I was being brought along and I was participating in th these different events, it didn't resonate with me until I was around my colleagues and my peers in college, and they spoke so highly of Selma and what took place in Selma. To one day, I looked. I said, "Well, you know what? I'm the I'm a direct descendant of." of enslaved Africans on the last slave ship. And they said, what? And I said, because they didn't, I, I, number one, I didn't understand the significance of it until then. So for me, um, once I grasped the significance, I was head, I was all in. And from that point on, I've done what I could to preserve this history, tell the story, and kind of bring as many people along the journey with me as I can. Um, and then finally, you saw my daughter. Um, so I've been very intentional. Uh, unlike for me, I've just been very intentional about educating her on this story and keeping her. She's three years old, and she always said, and I told her today, just today, I said, hey, I got to go and go, go to Troy University. And she's like, what's that? And I said, I gotta go. then she said, I told her I had to go talk about your police. And then she always hits her chest and says, my poli. And so I'm teaching her about poli and Rose Allen, and I'm being very intentional about bringing her along the journey of the position that I currently hold as the president of CDA to make certain that she knows the story and she can tell it as well. And I, I just want to follow on that because I interviewed so many of the descendants and many, many of the descendants, there are thousands in the country who don't know they're descendant from people on the Clotilda. And in some cases, it's because their own families hid the story from them. Um, the man uh, that, well, Jeremy's worked a lot with Darren Patterson in the Descendants Association. And Darren didn't know he was a descendant until he was 60 years old because his mother had always lied to him about it. And um, he had an aunt, his great aunt Eva, who lived up until 1992. And he knew her all his life. And she would say, since he was a little boy, you're an African. I'm African and you're African too. And his mom would say, don't listen to anything Aunt Eva says. She's not African and neither are you. But Aunt Eva was actually the third to last child born to one of the Africans, um, which is an extraordinary thing when you think about it. And yet he had the opportunity to ask her questions about his heritage stolen from him by his mother because she didn't want him thinking about that stuff you know, slavery and the Clotilda and all that. So, um, you know, I think what Jeremy's doing with his family and what his grandmother did with him is, is, you know, wonderful. That's how we should pass on these kind of stories. For a lot of the people in Africatown, they just didn't know. Uh, Y'all know Questlove, uh, the drummer for The Roots and the, the uh, TV show, you know. He, he's a descendant of the Clotilda, and he found out live on national television um, on the show Finding Your Roots. He had no idea. Um, so... Uh, you asked the hardest part about finding the ship. The hardest part about finding the ship was um, humiliating myself internationally. Um, I, I found, I went looking for the ship. I told you about, you know, looking for in the library, and I found all these clues that led me to this one spot. So the swamp where the ship is is a quarter of a million acres. And um, I honed in on this one island that's two miles long because that I kept finding it. The captain who sailed the ship said that's where he burned it. Cujo Lewis, in an interview when he was 87, said they burned it there. Um, and I had a few other clues. 
So I went there. Um, my, the first time I went to look, we had a huge storm system come through, a north wind that blew all the water out of the delta and Mobile Bay. So water levels were about four feet lower than normal. It was January 2nd, 2018. So I went out hoping I might see a ship with the low water. And sure enough, I found one. Um, and it was a schooner from the 1850s, and I brought some archaeologists from the University of Florida over. Um, I uh, took shipwrights, and they all agreed it was a schooner from the 1850s. I wrote a story that said, wreck found by reporter may be Clotilda. It went viral uh, internationally the day it published. And I know how viral it went because two days later, the ambassador of Benin was on my boat. The president of Benin had sent him to go to the site and do a Vodun ceremony, which is um, voodoo comes from Benin, where everybody on the Clotilda was and everybody who captured the people on the Clotilda lived. Uh, one little thing to think about with this Benin, Benin the country is next to Nigeria, so if Africa has got that big hump, Benin's right here. It's the same size as Alabama. Um, and so the kingdom of Dahomey you keep hearing about is this wicked, ruthless regime. It, it was a place about the size of, of let's say, uh, Birmingham or Montgomery. And for 300 years, it attacked the rest of Alabama and captured four million people. Um, the Dahomeans who captured the people on the descendants were responsible for capturing about four million people who were sold into slavery. So back to the, the ambassador comes, um, and then uh, about two months later, that was right after the ship, you know, that I revealed that we'd found this. Two months later, Stacy and all the archaeologists come, and by then it's not winter time, and everybody's getting in the water and diving, and they quickly figure out that the first ship I found is way too big. It's too long, and it's made of Douglas fir. So it, it's from the West Coast, the Pacific Ocean. It cannot be the Clotilda. And so they had a big meeting in Africatown where they announced this. And I had been there the day my first story came out and people were cheering, people were crying, they were so excited that Clotilda had been found. So in this meeting, the archeologists go through explaining all the ways the first ship I found was not the Clotilda. And um, it was pretty devastating to me to have to stand there and hear it. And I actually thought to myself, all right, I'm gonna leave this meeting and go home and drink whiskey and I'm not gonna look for the Clotilda anymore. Uh, and so I walked out of the meeting and um, a woman from Africatown came up to me, Thelma Mabin Owens, and gave me a big hug and sang a gospel song in my ear called There's a Bright Side Somewhere, Don't Stop Until You Find It. And she sang the song, you know, very pretty voice. And then she pushes me back and holds me by the shoulders and says, don't give up, Ben. You're going to find it. Nobody else is looking for it. You're going to find it. And so I turned and walked away from her feeling sort of like, you know, she had kind of anointed me with this mission. Um, and I walked up to two other archaeologists who had found a Dutch ship from the 1700s. And they came up to me and said, look, we think you're right. We think Timothy Mayer lied about where the ship was, because I mentioned he'd been interviewed so many times. Every time he tells a different location where they burned the ship, trying to throw people off. So these guys tell me, um, we, we were hired by the state to look for these two ironclad um, Confederate warships in the Mobile River, and we found them the first day. So we decided to look for the Clotilda. So they looked everywhere uh, to the bottom of 12 Mile Island, they said. They searched with modern survey techniques, and they didn't find it. And I knew a famous historian in Mobile had looked everywhere north of 12 Mile Island with modern survey equipment, but nobody had ever looked on the backside of 12 Mile Island. So I decided right then that's what I was gonna do. Um, and to get a boat equipped with this modern survey equipment is about $10,000 a day. So I called this guy, University of Southern Mississippi, uh, who runs their marine um, program, 
the marine science program, and I knew they had one of these boats because they train students for the oil industry. So I said, Monty, would you guys come over here with your boat and help me look for the Clotilda? And he said, well, maybe. What's your budget? And I said, well, I have absolutely no money. And he said, okay, we'll do it. And so they came. And he said he wanted to help Africatown. He had seen my spectacular failure originally. Um, so a week after the meeting where they announced it wasn't the Clotilda, Univers University of Southern Mississippi came and we did a full-scale bathymetric survey of that section of the river. Um, they took all the data back to the lab and made a chart of the river that showed 11 wrecks that we were going to check out. And so the next week, you know, two weeks after the failure of, was announced, we're back there in the water and we check all these different wrecks out and none of them could be Clotilda. They were either too big, too small, or made of metal, or they were modern. So we had struck out. So um, I called the survey up on my phone as everybody's packing up their dive gear, and I started scrolling through it. And the dive shop guy we had brought as our dive safety officer is standing behind me. And he looks and he says, well, what's that? And he points at something on the chart. And I said, I don't know, it looks like a shoe. And he said, not to me, that looks like the ship. That looks like a ship, let's go there. So we call back to the lab in Mississippi and get the coordinates to the shoe. And we go up there, and nobody else would get in the water. It was the end of the day. It was cold, and a wet, cold wetsuit is a miserable event. But I had been internationally humiliated. Um, so I got in the water and uh, started moving logs off of it, just like Stacy said. Kept going underwater. Couldn't see anything. You can't see your hand. The water was muddy. Um, moved all these logs off. The guys are laughing at me, saying, well, you found a pile of firewood. Um, and then I went down and I felt a piece of wood that was cut and hewn and squared off on the sides. And I pulled on it and it came up in my hand and I swam up to the surface with it. And that was the first piece of the ship to see the light of day. So the hardest part about finding it was being internationally humiliated and deciding to keep going and, and keep looking for it. Uh, Here, Dr. Catherine Tucker, without a microphone, thanks the panelists and thanks the audience members followed by audience applause. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.com dot org